and we are live from the Empire of Lies, a bastion of truth and free speech and great discussion in the vast wasteland that is the New World Order. I'm investigative journalist Lee Stranahan, and this is The Backstory. Hey, Jason. Hi, Lee. And we're joined today by guest co-host Jason Goodman from Crowdsource the Truth. I just want to make sure you're there before I interview. Yes. How's it going? Of course. It's going well. I like the old world order better. You like what? I like the old world order. Yes. Well, it depends <laughs> how old world you mean. I point out just that had. the new world order, the new world order seems to me to be a way of royalty keeping in power, the mm-hmm. like royalty in Great, Great Britain. Yeah. You notice they're still around. Exactly. And their name's on everything, from England to Canada. They're involved still. So I think the New World Order is actually a way of keeping the Old World Order in power. Does that make sense, Jason? Uh, Yes, it does, actually. So, I mean, I just like the way things used to be, where it wasn't like a danger of getting stabbed going to the post office. Oh, that. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> Be picky. Yeah. Well, we'll talk about that. Today's a great day. Producer Rod has put together a great show. It's an economics-heavy show. We have two great economists. Professor Richard Warner. Oh, he's great. Comes to us from Oxford. I believe he's in Oxford now. Mm-hmm. Is that right, Rod? Rod, is Professor um, Warner... I'm not 100% sure where uh, Professor Warner's at right now, so uh, not 100% sure on that. He's a very educated person. He studied at the University of Tokyo and at Oxford, and I believe he teaches at Oxford, but we'll find out. He's he's a man of the world, Jason. Fair to yeah. say. And second guest, also in a different way, a man of the world, multi-talented Eagle Scout, former Marine and prog rock drummer Mark Frost will be us in the second hour. So two great economists and there's a lot of economic news. So let's get right to it. Jason, what indeed is the name of the show? This is the backstory. So I'll tell you one of my analyses of this administration, the Biden administration in general is they hold on to things in a childlike way. They're out of reality, like children almost. Did you see what they did yesterday uh, in, the press, boy, he had, in the press conference? I'm not sure. There's so many crazy things that he's done. The Zoom meeting, you mean, or what? They, they redefined what a recession is. Oh, yes, I did see that. The reporter from Fox, Ducey, asked Joe Biden a question about the recession. And he pointed out what what a recession is. This is well established. It's two quarters of lower GDP. If gross domestic product goes down two quarters in a row, that's a recession. Got it, mm-hmm. Jason? Yes. It's, it's very clear. So we've already had one quarter of lower GDP, and the numbers come out tomorrow. Yeah. Now, what's your guess? Did GDP go up? I don't think so. 
and no one else does either. So right. what adults do is they go, we're about to be in a recession, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But yes. And they put this childlike woman who does act in some ways like a high school girl. They shove her out as Serene. a press secretary. To, yeah. Yes, St. Pierre. So they, they've now changed the definition of what a recession is. She's like, well... We don't know that that's a recession just because the GDP goes down. Well, jobs numbers are up, and that's unusual. That's embarrassing. Yeah. You know what it a is. recession is. We know this you know what, what a recession is. It's what do you new, think, Jason? It's not new. I mean, this is their go-to move. They're, they're you know— it's gaslighting by definition. It's Orwellian in terms of attacking language. But I don't know if you recall in my second interview with Alan Dershowitz when I tried to explain to him how his legal theory was completely wrong. I told him I first want to establish what a vaccine is, Professor Dershowitz. And I read to him from the CDC website their definition at the time of what a vaccine was. It said something about inoculating the recipient against getting a disease so that they don't contract it or transmit it. That was the definition. And Dershowitz said, I don't believe that. It's like, well, you're a lawyer and this is the CDC. So what you believe has nothing to do with it. This is the definition of a vaccine. So when these things conveniently don't align with reality, they don't correct their errors. They just change language and try to convince you that you're the stupid one. Right. They never correct their errors. Right. They handed out a Pulitzer Prize to right. news publications who reported on Russiagate, which was wrong. And then refused to retract when it was laid bare right in front of them. Where's your journalism report? Where's the record, the, the award for journalism for the people behind the science, behind the earth is flat? Right. If the New York Times is a report tomorrow, the Earth is flat. They can win an award still. It's true. As far as I can see, won't hurt their chances, right, Jason? Mm -hmm. I think it'll put them right at the forefront. Now I'll point out something. Fauci's back in the news a lot lately, and they say the they're warning people that more stringent measures in COVID nineteen may be coming soon. You notice that they're sounding the alarm. I would say they're cushioning people for the blow. They're yeah. telling people, get ready. More COVID things are coming, right? Is yeah. that what they're saying to us? Well, and monkeypox as well, right, both. And so right. one thing I don't understand is going into 2024, is Donald Trump really the right candidate when the COVID-19 thing is still going on? For instance, how would you rate Donald Trump, given a grade like he's in school, A through F, how would you rate him on the topic of vaccines? Uh, a D. I, okay. And the now only reason on it's what? not, well, the only reason it's not an F is that I feel that he was in a political position where he had no choice but to deliver a vaccine and his presidency would have been regarded. Um, they, they could have been taken more pot shots at him if he hadn't done the vaccine. 
because although I don't like the vaccine and I don't think it's a good idea to take experimental medical products into your body, uh, I recognize that Donald Trump was in a situation where all of the people who hated him, they do like the vaccine and they wanted it. So by issuing it under his presidency, he's sort of done a reverse psychology thing to the people that hate him. Because if he hadn't done it, they would have said, oh, Biden created the vaccine and Trump couldn't do anything right. We had COVID under Trump and then the vaccine under Biden. I think Trump pulled a fast one by getting the vaccine out under his presidency because he knew they wanted the vaccine. But couldn't you you argue that every single thing Trump does, they hate? And that if he's going to go by that standard, he should just do what they want. He should never apply his policy because maybe if he does what they want, they'll like him. I don't think he did it because they wanted him to or he did it to gain their favor. I think he did it to trick them because I believe he expected they were going to remove him and put that vaccine in as soon as he was gone. And by doing this, he he created certain counter arguments to their arguments that uh, I mean, I know this what I'm describing sounds a bit like somebody who's a fan of the 17th letter saying this is 5D chess. I don't think Trump is pay- playing 5D chess. I think he screwed up a lot of things. But then again, maybe he likes the vaccine too. He does claim to have taken it. His 74 or 77-year-old wife just had a heart attack, which is not that far outside the realm of normality, but I don't know. Uh, you know, there have been myocarditis and other blood clot and heart related issues with the vaccines. So, look, I don't like the vaccine. Well, do you know what else has come out? A a lot of stories have come out about the broad topic of Pfizer corporate malfeasance, Mm -hmm. Pfizer being a bad company, Mm -hmm. and them doing things and rushing medicine through simply so they could make a profit. Yeah. I'm I'm seeing increasing stories that— a lot of what was done was apparently done to help the corporate interests of Pfizer. Have you seen that? I have, and I think we know that Trump is definitely a pro-corporation president and perhaps even more pro-corporation than he is cautious. And I think at the end of the day, a, a lot of these things, they're talking about factories that weren't being checked for safety, Right. For instance, we're talking major stuff that impacts the safety of these vaccines. And they're saying the vaccines got approved and there's corporate considerations there. And I think people who are Trump supporters want to see Trump fight for things that matter and don't want to see Trump simply taking the corporate side. Do you agree with that, Jason? I do, but I don't necessarily agree that that is what Trump will do. It's a vastly different Trump landscape now, Lee, because remember, in 2016, a huge portion of people felt that the Trump campaign was ridiculous and that he would never win. Now that he's been president, and particularly now that we've been able to contrast an economically and geopolitically much more effective president against, you know, now Joe Biden, just awful by any standard. I think we have a little bit of a new playing field in that there are certain people who really like Trump who are now feeling like he let down the January 6th people who are in jail. 
They don't like it that he brought about the vaccine. They don't like it that he didn't take any action against Twitter, that Elon Musk was more effective at exposing Twitter as criminals than the president of the United States was. There are people who voted for Biden who now don't like Biden. So there's been a little bit of a reconfiguration of who might be pro-Trump and who might be anti-Trump in uh, 2024. Yeah, but it just it seems like the COVID-19 thing is going to come up again as a political issue. Do you agree yes. with that, Jason? Absolutely, absolutely. And I agree with you that they're gearing up to get everybody scared about it now. Now, let's take a short break. We have Professor Richard Warner, and we'll be talking about central bank digital currency. Do you know much about that, Jason? I mean, I've heard about it, and I know about Bitcoin. It's not doing so well right now. I'd be interested to hear what Professor Warner has to say about it. He's super smart. We'll be hearing that right after this short break on the backstory. We're back on the backstory, and it's Truth Tuesday. So we're joined by co-host Jason Goodman. Hey, Jason. Hi, Lee. We're on the radio on 105.5 FM, AM 1390. Joining us now, Professor Richard Werner. Hey, Professor, how are you doing today? Very well, thank you very much. How are you? Good. Thanks for coming on the show. And by the way, are you in Oxford? Is that where you are, in fact? Um, I'm a member of Lineker College, Oxford. Um, presently, I'm not in the UK. I'm moving about a bit. It's, yeah, summertime. You trying to stay cool? Yes, well, yeah, yeah, indeed. As you're traveling around, we were talking about COVID-19 before. Are you starting to see, just random question, as you travel around, are you starting to see COVID-19 precautions pick up again in your travels around the world? Um it seems to be, um, you know, a concern in in some countries again, and it looks like in more and more countries that people that in in positions of influence that want to step up COVID restrictions. But remember one thing: even at the peak of at the height of all this frenzy with lockdowns and quarantines and injections and all sorts of rules and restrictions for crossing borders. That was always a show because it was only um, if you were going by airplane. Now, in continental Europe, you've got many, many countries, um, you know, close to around 30 countries close together. And most people, of course, cross the border by car. And you know what? If you'd gone by car, um, nothing happened. There were no restrictions and nobody checked. The only country that was very honest about this, I found when you know traveling and checking various countries, was, was the country of Hungary. Hungary had said in 2020 on its website, if you come to Hungary, then um, the usual rules apply. And it was the same as in other countries. You know, you needed checks and tests and negative PCR results and quarantine and injections and all that. And then it said exemptions. Anyone who enters Hungary by car is totally exempt from everything. <laughs> and now that was honest because that's, that's the, the reality in all countries in continental Europe. 
as far as I can tell. And so uh, really, they only did this show for the airports uh, because journalists would be traveling um, that way. And, and, you know, it was essentially a minority, but it was given prominent coverage. So that's one advantage of being continental Europe. You can still move around by car, uh, usually unimpeded and unmolested. Um, now, of course, you're a professor of economics, and this is well below your stature in life to explain economics one-on-one, a freshman view of economics, as it were. But can you help President Biden understand basic economics? Is two quarters of GDP reduction, recession, is that correct, Professor Warner? Recession? What is a recession? Woman? What is a woman? Uh, you know, <laughs> it seems like right. don't know the exactly anymore. Um, and obviously, the, the fact is they're just uh, obfuscating. They're trying not to face reality. Um, and what we are experiencing is, of course, a recession. Um, in fact, it is a stagnation, a recession combined with inflation, which is a possible combination that doesn't hit very often. The last time was in the 70s. And already in you know April, May 2020, I was warning that we were likely going to get stagflation again, where you have inflation that normally uh, goes hand in hand with a lot of expansion, but it will be combined with a restriction of the economy, a recession. And that's the stagflation phenomenon, which is very uncomfortable and very, very bad for ordinary people because you get squeezed on, on various fronts. Now, it also seems to me ordinary people might be, ordinary people might not know what recession is, but the people who do are people who do finance for a living, economists and also business people, investors. So when the Biden administration comes out and tries to redefine recession out of existence, the very people who you want to be confident in the economy, the investors, the business people, they're not fooled. Is is are, is are any business people fooled by this redefining a recession by the Biden administration, Professor? But certainly, investors will not be fooled because it's you know it's been a long established definition. Uh, two consecutive quarters of uh, GDP uh, growth uh, being negative um, is a recession. Um, and also beyond investors, you know, financial investors who look at the numbers all the time, um, just business people will be aware of the very difficult situation we've been facing. Of course, there's some industries that have been doing okay, but there's quite a lot where um, there have been this combination of you know, restrictions, government interventions uh, resulting in supply restrictions and supply chain interruptions, um, including in, in crucial industries like agriculture and food supply industries. And it seems governments the world over actually stepping up their efforts to disrupt food supplies, which is very concerning. Um, and at the same time, everything getting more expensive, therefore people having effectively less money to spend. Um, already two years ago, this started, and, and if you were um, you know, watching this carefully, you'd, you'd notice that already two years ago, 
they started to reduce the packaging of almost everything. They kept the price the same, but things got smaller. Um, that that was the beginning, and of course now it's 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 quite obvious how everything has become much more expensive. So it's it, yeah, it can't be hidden. It's it's quite obvious to most people. They're calling that shrinkflation, the reduction of a product and keeping it at the same size uh, price. Yeah. Yes, and it seems to me that a lot in economics is based on something ineffable people's moods. They talk about consumer confidence. And a lot of it's how people feel about the future. I, am I right in thinking people's feelings that are hard to predict and hard to figure sometimes play a lot of role in economics? Um, yes. However, they're a function of something else. You know, they're, they're easily manipulated, as we know. People are very easily manipulated. Um, of course, if, if the manipulation is very outrageous, then you may have to um, organize it well and you have to bribe the entire media industry to help you um, brainwash people into something. But it can be done and has been done. So people really follow mostly the sentiment that is created uh, by the media and also, of course, by the central banks, because the central banks, through their monetary policies, and here I mean the true monetary policies, not um, the the official narrative, but the actual policies, they determine people's behavior. And let me briefly explain this, because central banks themselves are very much uh, familiar with trying to um, sort of pull the wool over people's eyes by giving one impression, while actually they're doing something else. They don't want to be easily discovered. Economists even praise this as being effective, being effective as a central banker when people can't really figure out what you're doing. And so they've become quite good at that. One fundamental tool to hide what's going on is actually economics, modern economics, the way it's taught at universities, macroeconomics, um, it says, as, as one fundamental tenet, it says if you lower interest rates, this will stimulate the economy. If you raise interest rates, this will slow the economy. Now that we have inflation, they want to suppress that, so they want to suppress economic activity, so they're going to raise, and they've been raising interest rates, right? Well, so that's the right. narrative, and we've heard it so often for the last 50 years central bankers and financial journalists and um, and economists. In fact, in economics, that is the one thing that all these different schools of thought uh, of modern economics agree upon. Since David Ricardo in the 19th century, classical economics, Alfred Marshall 19, uh, around 1900, neoclassical economics, Keynes, Keynesianism, the 1930s, and then monetarism, and then all the more recent schools of thought, they all agree on one thing. If you lower rates, that leads to uh, more economic growth. If you raise rates, that slows the economy. But has there been any empirical evidence to demonstrate this? And the answer is no. There is no empirical evidence, because it turns out that is actually one of those smoke screens that central banks have been deploying um, big banking firms and, and 
central banks most recently been deploying in order to distract attention. So you're supposed to watch these interest rates. Well, the real monetary policies can be recognized when you look at the not the price of money, the interest rate, but the quantity of money, if you measure it correctly, if you look at the credit creation, which is the money creation, which is largely taking place in the banking system and then also in the central bank. And if you look at this credit creation, you get the real picture. And that can be very, very different from the interest rate story. So, yes, as you say, I mean, there, there is a lot of confusion about what's really going on. But if central banks move credit creation in a certain way, as a result, and they don't have to talk about that, and usually do it quietly, um, that will change people's moods and perceptions because the, the actual money is coming around and is affecting things. And then that affects people's behavior and the whole economy is being moved. Now, here in the U.S., the central bank is supposed to be saying it's interest rates tomorrow, and they're expected to rise, as you say. you think there's any possibility we're going to be surprised by what the U.S. central bank does tomorrow? Well, I've, uh, I can't really forecast what they're going to do tomorrow, but overall, um, it, you know, it looks like this scenario of raising rates um, is going to run out of steam sooner or later because they've started to slow the quantity of credit creation already half a year ago. And so the sequence of events is it's the quantity of credit creation that drives the economy, GDP, growth. And, and you know what? Interest rates, actually, when you look at the empirical facts, you know, what is the relationship between interest rates and economic growth? They're actually positively correlated, and they, interest rates follow growth. So once central banks create more money, the economy revs up, and that raises, that pushes up interest rates, and they will always go up. Um, but once they, central banks slow credit creation, that reduces economic growth, and then rates come down. And um, recently, for the last half year, they've been tightening the quantity of credit, and therefore rates um, are likely to, to come down again. Now, usually we do think of recession going along with higher unemployment, but the Biden administration is right. Unemployment is fairly low right now. How do you account for the disparity between the employment numbers and the state of the economy, Professor? Yes, well, I think we need to look at the details of the unemployment figures. There's actually around eight, nine, or ten different unemployment figures, U1, U2, U3, U4, and so on, U8, U9. Um, overall, if you're a government, the trick is to make sure that those who lose their jobs are quickly dropped out of the workforce. Then unemployment is not going to go up, even though a lot of people are not working. Because you then argue, ah, oh, well, they're not anymore in the workforce. They've given up looking for a job. Um, and then <laughs> your unemployment figures look good. So that phenomenon is likely to, to be part of it. Then, of course, we have uh, various government measures um, and support measures. and, and um, So we would have to look at those details. But at the same time, I mean, unemployment is just one outcome of, you know, of a recession and a bad economic situation. At the moment, we are in a, in, a, in a 
type of recession that is a bit unusual because it happens only, say, twice in a century where you have inflation and a stagnation, a recession. And in that situation, it can be um, a bit different. And the unemployment can come, you know, the big unemployment can come later uh, because initially, as you have revved up the economy from 2020, um, nominal transactions go up and nominal GDP is rising a lot. And initially, that gives the impression to people, oh, we're actually doing okay. It's when the reality sets in that, oh, actually, that was just nominal and, oh, actually, everything has become more expensive. The money I'm getting, my, my salaries, my wage is not really worth that much anymore. You know, as that starts to um, to come clear, become clear to people, then they start to, to react to that. And so in the initial phase, you wouldn't see that much unemployment um, in a stagflation, but it, it then... Um, is likely to uh, to hit you later. Of course, we also have the supply side problems and the energy cost uh, increases, um, and they're also going to negatively affect the economies. Now, in the U.S., you're still reasonably okay, but if you look at Europe, it, it does look very, very bad because their governments have very proactively stepped in and done almost all they could in order to restrict economic growth, cut off energy supplies to businesses, and also impose rules and restrictions concerning various um, economic activities. Uh, they want to cut, um, cut back farming, agriculture, um, standard you know, industrial production. They want to cut back on automobile production. Um, it's, it's a nightmare. And it's all very, very sort of uh, Soviet style. You know, you have some apparatchik deciding we need to restrict economic activity now and, and they, they go ahead like that. So fortunately, the U.S. is not quite as bad, but we see also similarities with some U.S. policies with what's happening in Europe, unfortunately. You know, gentlemen, if I may, by way of an analogy, ask a question, because when I listen to the professor speak, obviously he's an expert in economics and he's talking about these different statistics that are clearly designed to analyze such a complex and large uh, array of information. I mean, what you were telling us about the unemployment statistics, they can be looked at this way and yield one thing and the other way and yield another thing. Most people are not economic experts in the same way that most people who get on an airplane are not aviation experts. But when I'm on the plane, just as after a disaster on the plane, aviation experts in the NTSB can come in and examine every bolt and every screw and get it down to the one chip that caused the thing to explode. When I'm riding on the plane, I might not know all that, but when it starts to shake around and I realize I'm in danger, I know that. And I don't know what's going on with unemployment, stagflation, inflation, this and that. But as I walk around my city, businesses are closed. My friends and I, everybody's complaining that we have less money. It's clear that whatever Joe Biden says, we're in a major economic problem right now. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Actually, the one thing where the analogy doesn't work is, um, I mean, you'd like to have these 
uh, forensic experts examining an economic disaster to really find out what happened. Right. Give us the details so then we can learn from it and can avoid this in the future. Well, that's precisely what the central planners don't want to happen. <laughs> and really the, the, the economists working for large banks and large organizations and even the academic economists at universities, major universities, will not engage in this exercise. They do quite the opposite. They will support the official government narrative. And usually the storyline will be, oh, well, this is some external factors, events abroad that nobody could anticipate or could do anything about resulted in this unfortunate economic outcome, but there's nothing to learn here, really, and so on and so on. <laughs> so sadly, we, we don't have the situation, unlike in aviation, where the experts actually really want to figure out exactly what went wrong. I tried to do that, by the way, um, during my time in Japan, because there was such a big disaster. In fact, I was still predicting the disaster to happen. I knew it's going to happen and the economy is going to implode. And I thought, well, this is going to be so important to, to forensically identify exactly what went wrong and who was responsible. So I did that in my book, Princes of the Yen, uh, in, in great detail. That's available on quantumpublishers.com, by the way. And um, it became a bestseller in Japan, but the um, the key actors in Japan were not too happy about it, and um, they managed to avoid the lessons. And then the, the media um, refused to to cover this. A bit of media coverage, but then very quickly the the major newspapers were told to um, to not cover the book. Um, was um, the big central planners um, were not interested in such forensic analysis. So that's the problem with, with economic wow. like, lying on air. That's interesting. I mean, I'm glad you brought that up because last time we spoke, you mentioned your uh, prediction and everyone in Japan, you know, no one thought that it was going to come true. And now you're telling us how it was suppressed. I was just reading that the Japan Central Bank is going to start using XRP and doing something with cryptocurrency. But XRP is involved in some kind of lawsuit with the SEC here in the United States. Could it be that they didn't want to investigate because they have a way of hiding their own malfeasance within these collapses and resets and what's going to happen with this XRP thing? Yes, well, XRP is, is Ripple. Ripple is very much a sort of establishment-backed um, organization it has been cooperating with some very large financial institutions like J.P. Morgan and quite a large number of central banks. And it's it's an, it's one of the key examples of the um, blockchain use um, in in sort of these these alternative uh, cryptocurrencies. Uh, Bitcoin mm-hmm. is another example. And it's interesting that it's very clear that central banks are actually very interested in this, and central banks are one way or another backing this, actually. They're backing these uh, cryptocurrencies. Now, that's that's actually, it should be surprising because central banks also claim that, oh, that's actually competition to us. Because we have Bitcoin, that's why we now are forced to introduce central bank digital currencies. <laughs> um, and of course, that's that's where we're heading, you see. So it's just a belief 
um, excuse for the central banks and the central planners um, to to launch what they really want to launch, which is not so much a currency um, as a control tool for totalitarian control of everything you're doing, everything you're buying, um, yeah. when and where, and it can be totally controlled and fine-tuned down to one individual not being allowed to buy this, that, and the other, or mm. allowed to buy something here because it's a mile beyond the radius you're allowed to move, and, 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 you know, all these things can be done with these, and so the central planners are really very keen on this. So, so that's why you should never be surprised when you hear a central bank, such as the Bank of Japan, announcing that, oh, we're collaborating with Ripple, you know, XRP, um, or Ethereum could be, or even, you know, we're using Bitcoin, whatever. It, you know, that happens all the time because really that's what they want, and they want to um, to move towards uh, these central bank digital currencies. By the way, the CBDC, central bank digital currency, as they call it, that's a yeah. A misnomer. It's a misnomer. It's a marketing term. On purpose, it sounds a bit technical and boring, um, but also it should, should, is supposed to give the impression that something new is happening here. Well, the truth is we have been using bank digital currencies for many decades because most of our money is bank money, and that is digital. Right. That works very well. So then the question has to be, well, hang on. So, so what is this EBDC, central bank digital currency, and do we really need it? And of course, the answer is no, we don't need it. It's the central planners that would love to have it, and they're working on introducing it. But we have been doing very well with bank digital currency for many decades, which is just normal bank money, bank transfers, your bank account, your deposit in the bank. That's the digital currency we have been using. Now, Central banks are actually bank regulators. And what they're now proposing is that they, as umpires in the game, uh, you know, regulating and watching the banks, um, they're now saying that we, as umpires, we should now join the game. And that, of course, <laughs> breaks all the rules. I mean, they're mm. not supposed to be a player. You know, whether it's tennis and suddenly the umpire climbs down and then right. says, well, I'm going to join. Or, or soccer in Europe, you know, is very popular. If the umpire suddenly says, well, I'm going to score with a ball and runs for the ball and everyone else, I'm going to whistle and give them a yellow card or the red card, send them away, and I'm going to score really high. Yeah, of course, that's possible. If you're the umpire, you can win the game. Now, that's what right. the planners are trying to do. They're really, what, what they call CBDC is really just current accounts at the central bank for everyone. That's what they ultimately are aiming for. And if they offer that, then essentially that's the end of banking. And that's why um, one should be very careful about this, because this is total centralization, because then we'll have one bank left, the Federal Reserve, the central bank will be left. That's, of course, what the central planners would love to do. The Soviet Union had one bank, Ozbank, and the, Soviet, the central planners, they love that. You know, that's maximum power. Um, but that is, of course, the most dangerous system. There's too much power in the hands of too few people. It has to be um, avoided at all costs. So we should really argue strongly against this. We don't need these CBDCs. Um, but that's the answer to your question. You know, that's what's happening. They are collaborating a lot with these 
blockchain technologies because ultimately, you know, it's, it's, they see them as, as a step towards their real goal, which is to introduce central bank digital currencies, which is current accounts at the central bank, driving banks out of business, and then they, they control everything. They see what you're buying, where you're buying. They will abolish cash. Uh, gold will be suppressed. Um, and they have total control over your economic activity. Now, when you talk about control, usually the people who want control are politicians and governments. But you're talking about a central bank wanting control. This opens the question, who's really running things? In theory, shouldn't the central bank be subservient to any given government? And what's actually going on, Professor? Yeah, that's a very, very good question. What has happened in the last uh, 40 years is that central banks across the globe have been given so-called independence, whereby they do not have to listen to governments. And the technocrats, the technocrats, the bureaucrats at these central planning bureaucracies, the central banks, have in most countries practically a free hand uh, to, to do whatever they want. That's the reality. And that's, of course, why since then, in these 40 years when central banks have become more and more powerful and they're now um, the most powerful economic actors, since then, we've seen more frequent and bigger boom and bust cycles. Why? Well, that's the business they're in that maximizes their power. And so economic performance has actually become worse since we've given more power to these central planners. So you're absolutely right to ask the question, well, who's actually in charge? Um, and it's a contradiction if you have a, a so-called democracy, but actually some technocrats can make the, the really very important decisions and are more powerful than, than politicians. Of course, with um, the American president Biden out there, I think more and more people are waking up to this reality that the person standing out there reading something off a script is not necessarily the key decision maker that makes the key uh, policy decisions, right? Right, right. And so, Professor, you're not saying this is something to watch out for. You're not warning against us. You're saying we're there already, correct? Sorry. It's now. We have been there and it's getting worse. What and can be done to reverse it? more obvious now. Yeah, go ahead, Jason. Well, what can be done to address it, reverse it, prevent it, anything? Yes. I mean, the more, the more people are aware of this and are demanding from their local politicians and their um, you know, uh, members of Congress to to do something about it, the better. There are some politicians that have been working hard for many decades arguing that the Federal Reserve should be abolished because it's against the Constitution and it has not performed well. It hasn't actually done what it was meant to do, um, like uh, Ron Paul, former Senator Ron Paul. Um, yeah, he's worked very hard, and there's others like him. Um, and... You know, so something can be done, but we have to fight for it. It's it's a long-term struggle, and they've been central planners have been working on this for a long time to increase their power, and they've been quite successful, particularly in the last year, sort of half century. But we shouldn't give up, and 
these crises are just another indication of the um, of the bad fruits that this tree is yielding. So, well, let's cut it down. Let's change things, and that can be done. I think you know if the economic performance, the performance delivered by these central planets was great, it'd be much harder to say, well, let's change things. But the performance has been disastrous, really. Why do we have inflation? They say it's because of a war in Europe. They say it's because of an an oil shock or a gas supply shock, energy shock. Actually, no. Central planners, central banks increased money creation dramatically in March, April, May 2020. And that resulted, you know, takes one and a half years in the present inflation. Same actually is true of the 1970s. The previous example of stagflation, where we've got high inflation and bad economic performance and recession. Most people still today think, oh, it was an oil shock in the Middle East, OPEC embargo, and then oil prices went up, and then we had inflation. No, that's not true, actually. Look at the data. and The data clearly says what happened first was the central planners at the central banks massively increased money creation. They did this in 1972. And in almost all countries, it peaked in early 73. But the oil price shock only hit the, the war in the Middle East and the OPEC embargo and all that only hit from October 73. And you can show that in terms of the uh, you know, the amount is very clear. It's the massive, massive money creation that happened early in 1972 and mostly was, you know, uh, beyond the peak in early 73, that that created this inflation. And it's the same this time around. Well, but you're talking about yeah, specifically the, the petrodollar, right? When Nixon took the dollar off the gold standard and Kissinger created this system with the Saudis, how do you see Saudi Arabia? They've now said they're ready to join BRICS. What will that do to the U.S. dollar, the petrodollar, if Saudi joins the BRICS nations? Yes. Well, it looks like the petrodollar is finished. And that's why U.S. government has been clamping down on dollar outflows and is essentially making it very hard for Americans to send their money abroad and is taking all the policy decisions to ensure that Dollars come into the U.S. and don't leave the U.S. One policy already of the last five years has been to clamp down on so-called tax havens and make that very difficult and very, um, you know, um, well, essentially make it illegal to have your money in, in, in various international domiciles. But the biggest tax haven is now the U.S., for international investors. But that, that was the whole purpose, because there's been no clampdown on the, the U.S., uh, you know, uh, low or zero tax jurisdictions. So that's one of the best places to put your money. Um, so to keep the dollar there, it's very hard for Americans to suddenly go abroad and live abroad. There's quite a, I mean, in Europe, it's, it's made, uh, being made very hard for Americans to be there. Why? They should stay at home and, and keep their dollars in the U.S. That's the government policy. So um, they've been working hard to prevent the collapse of the dollar. But, of course, it can only delay um, this, this end of the reign 
of the petrodollar. As you say, we've, we're seeing a, a different geopolitical um, uh, constellation now emerging. And it's, I mean, U.S. policies have really brought together Russia and China and all the BRICS countries. Iran is joining um, the whole Central Asia, which is quite a booming area. They don't have sanctions against Russia. Sanctions against Russia are mainly imposed by countries in the Europe, in, in the American Empire, which is largely Europe. Cause these sanctions, thereby destroying European economic performance. Uh, industry won't get um, energy anymore. But if you travel a bit further east, economies are booming. Russia is booming. China is booming. Um, and new forged um, in Central Asia. Uh, Turkey is now, which you know, is still uh, officially a NATO country, but essentially also moving into this um, into this group of countries um, with the BRICS and Russia and China. And more and more countries will be doing that. Saudi Arabia, that's, that's a big shock to the U.S. That was the original anchor to the system supporting the U.S. dollar. Once the dollar peg in rescinded, temporarily suspended, uh, we were told, over half a century ago. And then, of course, the dollar right. fell. And to shore it up, as you know, the dollar system was created where Saudi Arabia would only sell, the biggest oil exporter would only sell oil and then also other commodities only against the U.S. dollar. Um, and you know, until recently, um, it was essentially, a, there was a death penalty on any oil exporting ruler who would right. sell um, against the euro, you know, whether it's Hussein or Qaddafi in Libya. Um, but that seems to be over. I mean, um, therefore, we will see a complete realignment of the global currencies. But then on the other hand, maybe that's even desired because central banks have been saying that they're looking at a new global financial infrastructure and the new global financial system introduced their central bank digital currency, certainly in the, the Western Hemisphere. And, and to do that, of course, you have to debauch the existing system. So, but what happens to the average American when the petrodollar collapses? Um, well, inflation, uh, things from abroad getting more expensive. Um, but... America is also, you know, still a big agricultural producer, and therefore at least the the food supply should be secure. If you don't have uh, really counterproductive and restrictive government policies, and that seems to be the next danger. That um, I mean, it's happening in Europe. It's happening in many countries. It happened in Sri Lanka, where farmers. Life was made hard for farmers. Also in India last year, we had big demonstrations by farmers. Um, in, in Holland, the government wants to take away the land from the farmers and, and is imposing restrictions. Give up 95% of your livestock. Give up your farm. Give us the land. They have different plans for that. Um, and you have to be very careful that you won't get similar policies in the U.S. We know already certain billionaires are buying up 
most of the farmland in the U.S. Also housing, family homes are being bought up by the likes of BlackRock and um, large asset management companies. So these are not uh, really good um, tendencies. While fundamentally the U.S. can be quite autarkic and safe and you know, can be a strong economy, even if there's, there's, there's trouble abroad, but you've got to watch your own government policies then. Now, as I'm trying to follow the political situation in the UK, as the Conservatives are about to elect someone new, Rishi Suyak or Liz Truss, I'm led to understand that taxes are a big problem for ordinary people in the UK. Am I right in understanding that taxes are a big issue for normal people in the UK, Professor? Yes, I think they're, they're, they're reasonably high, and they have been uh, going up in the last, you know, 15 years. Um, but as you can imagine, there's, there's essentially no tax reductions in sight, and parties of, you know, of all persuasions are not actually talking about reducing taxes. Yeah, I hear certain, I hear platitudes from people like Liz Truss about it. So the Tories are, it seems like, talking about it, right? But they're not actually implementing it. No, no, no. It's unlikely to happen. Uh, the policy has been to squeeze ordinary people in the middle class, and I don't see a change in that policy. There's some exceptions in Europe. There's a there's small number of countries where they're taking different policies, but that puts them at odds with the European Commission, and they're under pressure uh, mostly in in the European Union, it's the same tendencies to raise taxes. In Germany, there's been a, a property bubble um, induced by the European Central Bank, and now the government wants to cash in and wants to raise taxes on property if you own land and so on. And thank you very much, Professor Richard Werner. We're out of time. Fantastic appearance. Sobering, I would yeah, say, Jason. Do you agree? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, scary. Some frightening stuff there. And yeah. we'll talk about it. Let's take a short break and we'll talk about what we heard on the backstory. We are live for the second hour from the Empire of Lies, the show that brings you the truth behind the headlines. I'm Lee Stranahan. My guest co-host is Jason Goodman from Crowdsource of Truth. And this is the backstory. So great appearance by Richard Warner in yeah. the first hour. Age Jason? Yeah, I mean, he's super knowledgeable. And that's sobering to hear that it's, you know, when I asked the question, who's running things, the banks or the government, yeah. I wasn't aware the answer would be so frightening. Yeah. Because he's yeah, basically I mean, saying, unlike the technocrats, are running everything. Is that what you took away? Yeah, I mean, we sort of knew that. But, I mean, it's one of these things where if you sort of feel like something's happening and then you speak to an expert, he explains to you in detail why it's happening and all the... 
intricacies of it, it, it sets in. I mean, this destruction of the petrodollar at one point not that long ago, I would ask people about that and they treat it like something that was never going to happen. And I mean, I think it's happening right now. Right. It is happening right now. And he's very matter of fact about it. Well, yeah, yeah th that's what's happening. Yes. And that's what's frightening. Would you yes. say, as a matter of factness, made it more frightening, Jason? Uh, it's it's the it's the it's sobering the realization that this is happening. Yes. And, I mean, this is like a doctor coming into the room telling you the bad news about your prognosis. And I mean, yeah, it sets in in a way that it's real. Right. Although you went into the doctor because you had a giant growth on your stomach. Let's say. Right, but you know, you're and always so going to feel like, well, maybe this is nothing and they can just kind of take care of it. And they're like, oh, yeah, you're going to die from this. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh. Now, joining oh. us this hour will be economist Mark Frost. And I want to ask him some questions about things commies say. But we'll wait for Mark to come on to get to those questions. And now let's go on with the food stuff. Because yesterday I had a rare story about a South Dakota congressman doing something newsworthy. They seldom okay. do. There's only one congressman in South Dakota, Justice Johnson. And I'll talk about what he did yesterday that we talked about next on The Backstory. Did you hear anything on who Congressman Dusty Johnson from South Dakota is taking on Jason? Um, I guess Christy Noem. I don't know. Who? Bill, Bill Gates. Oh, wow. Great. Oh, he doesn't want him buying uh, farmland? Yes. So you got to understand, there's not a lot of farms in South Dakota because the, mm -hmm. the land isn't good for it. Does that oh. make sense? It's not suitable farming soil. Yeah. Right? Dry. But, high, high altitude and oh. arid. Yes. But there are a lot of ranchers because uh -huh. it's pretty good ranching land. Does that make sense? Okay. So the last thing the ranchers want to hear is replace meat completely with fake meat. Yeah. And that's what Bill Gates wants to do, 100%. He wants yeah. to replace 100% of meat with fake meat. Does that yeah. make sense? I mean, do no, you understand that? Doesn't. I understand it, not, but it does not make sense. It's a stupid idea by Bill Gates. And so Bill Gates seems to be pursuing this by buying a lot of farmland. The average farm is like 450 acres. And apparently Gates has like five to ten times that that he owns personally. Does, you, you've heard that, right, Jason? Yes, I have. So Dusty Johnson is asking a good question that I'm sure a lot of his constituents want to hear. Why is Bill Gates buying that farmland? Dusty Johnson suspects it's so he can kill meat production. Right. Now, that's kind of like a, a monopoly power. He's buying something to kill it. Well, he right? loves doing monopolistic stuff, doesn't he? Apparently, yes. Microsoft. Yeah. And uh, so Dusty Johnson is taking him on. And I'm actually glad that Dusty Johnson, by the way, by the way, Dusty Johnson is a milk toast Republican. So the fact that he's pursuing this tells you 
it's a mainstream issue. Right. And you could see other Republicans going after this issue. And I think that the New World Order is making a mistake because they don't seem to get that the way to piss people off is to go after their food supply. Do you agree that people who are complacent suddenly act interested when you're threatening their food supply? Have you noticed that? A good friend of mine has a saying that civilization is always nine meals away from obliteration. And nothing to remind people of it than bringing up the food supply. I'm thinking right. of the Dutch farmers, of course, and the Germans and even Spanish have joined in solidarity with them. And I would say that conceptually, if not actually, the Canadian truckers, the Canadian truckers seem to me to be of a piece with the Dutch farmers that seem like the same kind of people, working class, well, common yeah. sense people. I think farmers Is that everywhere. right, Jason? I think farmers everywhere are going are gonna to share certain, you know, commonalities. Yes, and they seem, and and the same thing they're trying to do to the food supply. We talked about Monsanto yesterday with Ian Schilling, and he pointed out the way they work. Where Patenting seeds and everything. Yes, exactly right. And so a lot of people in rural America, standard Republicans, care about these food issues. Have you noticed that? When you talk to Republicans, they care about these issues. Have you noticed well, that, Jason? I think almost every single person I've ever met likes food. So you mess with that, and it's going to be a pretty bipartisan response, I would think. And I think they don't realize, I'm talking about the New World Order, that they're going to, people are getting red-pilled or green-pilled because it's more of a food color. I guess it's red pill for beef. The red right. is for a nice rare steak or something like that. Mm -hmm. But this is craziness that's going on. And who better to take a call about it than Owl Killer? 202-521-1320. Owl Killer, do you have any conspiracy theory on what's going on with food to lay on us? No, I mean, it, again, you, it goes back to what you guys were just talking about on Saturday, right? So Bill Gates, it's not just it's not just uh, South Dakota. Go take a look at the map of the, the farmland he's purchased: California, yeah. Arizona, Florida, New Mexico, Louisiana, Idaho. He's, it's not about fake meat; it's about turning off meat. That's right. what it's about. So I, I, the fake meat is a distraction. That's that's his little toy that he's screwing. He's a mad scientist in a lab screwing around with um, fake meat just going to turn your meat supply off. And you already know he has that uh, monopolistic mentality in his mind where he does not care about other people. He looks at everybody's an opportunity. So um, you guys brought up the um, five-star movement on Saturday. You're talking about mm -hmm. and who's running the government. The, the, I remember I was stationed in uh, Naples, Italy in 2011. Mario Monti took over the government after uh, Berlusconi. Um, I think I believe he resigned, or he was uh, he was uh, a no confidence vote. I want to say he resigned, and Mario Monti was literally called a tech. He was appointed a, a technocrat. So now, right now, what you have with Draghi in Italy, 
um, he's the he was the head of the European Central Bank, so they're a little more bold in Europe. I I mean, it just being it, just living in Europe for the amount of time that I did, the spirit is not there. They, they you know they lost so many people in World War One and World War Two, and I think when you had Ian Schilling on just the other day, it, I, I you'd have to, you actually have to be over there to experience it. That it's it's almost like a defeated uh, it's a defeated culture. And the only ones that seem to have any um, pride in themselves, and you know, and pride in the civilization that they created, seem to be ex um, countries that were actually uh, um, Warsaw Pact countries, like a Poland or a Hungary. So, and, and it's weird, and it's weird that they that they attack somebody like the uh, president of Hungary as a you know he's a racist, he's uh, xenophobic, and. They already saw the hell that this thinking brings in. I mean, that's one of the things Stalin did. Um, was it with a? It was in Ukraine with this guy Lysenko, where this guy blamed the farmers, and this guy was gluing orange and apple trees together, thinking it was going to create another fruit. Like that—that's the mentality of these people. And <laughs> it's—it's it's unbelievable. But you, you can—you can look it up. It's, to see it, you read. What these people went through, and then you just see it playing out again. Now, somebody like a Bill Gates. Now, we joke around with the with the food supply. Again, this is a man who said that some, he puts an equation up on the screen during a TED talk and said somehow one of these numbers needs to get down to zero. Let's look at population, and the entire audience starts laughing at it. And said if we do a really good job with um, vaccines. Vaccinations, reproductive health care, which is abortion, and and uh, health care. And, and he talks about death panels later on in another speech where you vote, hey, do we give this person a cane or do we hire 10 teachers? And he is a bad face for the New World. Okay. We won't play a clip that's relevant, I'll tell her. So thanks for the call. Great call as usual. Rod, yeah, Bill Gates, can you come guy. on and set up, can you set up this clip, clip for us, Rod? Yeah, this was a clip I was uh, actually uh, Professor Warner had uh, posted it and talked about it. <clears throat> and this was in, uh, I think it's on BBC in the UK. But this is a guy who's a writer. He's talking about uh, ending farms in Europe, the end of farms in Europe. Yes. So it's right on topic. Hit it. This country, George, there's a big emphasis on agriculture and how agriculture needs to cut its emissions. And I know it's an, it's an issue you feel very strongly about. You've said that agriculture is arguably the most destructive industry on earth. Explain, and, and do you still believe that, George? It's by far and away the greatest cause of habitat destruction, the greatest cause of wildlife loss, the greatest cause of extinction, greatest cause of soil loss, greatest source of fresh water use. It's one of the greatest causes of climate breakdown, um, bigger than transport, um, one of the primary causes of water pollution and of air pollution. So it's right at the top. Oh, and sorry, I forgot to say land use, the biggest issue of all. It's by far and away the greatest um, um, uh, form of land use that, that humans um, inflict on the planet, which means all that land is land which can't be used for wild ecosystems. And while obviously we need farming, we need to minimise those impacts. We, we need um, to act as drastically within that sector as any other sector to prevent the collapse of our life support systems. And what that means above all else is getting out of livestock farming, is really shutting down animal farming 
altogether because that has massively disproportionate impacts on the living planet and we need to switch towards other sources of food, plant-based diets, which are far more efficient, far lower environmental impacts, but also switch out of farming altogether to produce protein-rich foods, which we can do through precision fermentation, brewing microbes. I can hear farmers all over the small country of ours shocked and perhaps screaming at their televisions because they're saying, are you saying all animal farming, in, in, in your opinion, really needs to stop? Yes, it does. It really does. Um, it's a bit like leaving fossil fuels in the ground. Unless we do that, we've really got very little chance indeed of preventing this domino effect of system collapse right across Earth okay. systems, which basically makes the planet uninhabitable. So eating meat and milk and eggs is an indulgence we cannot afford. Yeah, so there you uh, go. I totally disagree with that guy. I disagree with that guy. Where is his evidence? This sounds like you're talking to a vegan. And, you know, Lee, I don't know if you've ever tried vegan food, but uh, I, I mean, look, at a certain point, you know, us just being here is destroying the planet. So, you know, if you gave this to an artificial intelligence computer to solve, the solution would be to kill everyone on the planet and then the planet will be fine. Uh, I don't agree but with that guy. It's very clear. He, he is very clear. Get rid of all farming of animals. In right. his opinion, he's clear. I haven't heard where is the evidence that he's provided and where is the counterpoint to his point. I don't just listen to every you know, British person who gets on the BBC and says this is what we need to do. But it's very clear what their goal is. I'm yes. not arguing for the goal. I'm saying yeah. get real. Uh, farmers are starting to get real. And I, I, I'll say this about something Alcala said. He said in his experience in Europe, don't forget, Europeans may take a while to rise up, but when they do, it's often bloody. Mm. The, the, remember the French looked at the American Revolution and said, that's fine, we'll bring a guillotine. You know that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And there are plenty of cases of people across Europe going back to 1917 and so on where they took over farms and killed people who ran the farms. So I'm just saying that when you see the kind of anger you're seeing in Holland or in solidarity in Germany, and they're not even really angry yet, I'm just saying the Europeans, you don't want to piss them off. Do you see what I'm getting yeah. at, Jason? Well, we're, it feels like we're getting close to the ninth inning, right? I mean, people are going to get pissed off when you start messing. Listen, Lee, I know you love beef. You and I have been to the Trump Steakhouse and, you know, Hill Country Barbecue and whatnot. I would get extremely pissed off. I mean, if you can't eat beef, if they just decided chicken, beef, eggs, none of that, pork, none of that. You got to eat quinoa and tofu and, uh, I mean, how enjoyable would your life be? Well, it would be short because I would kill myself. <laughs> but you know what I mean. At a certain point, I mean, we eliminate everything. Everything anybody or any animal or anything does has an impact on other things. This is another reason why I really objected, certainly in America, to the concept of you have to wear a mask and you have to get a vaccine because you might impact me. 
This country, America, a study, I'm not speaking. A study that has been done by major universities for 500 years shows that every diet is fatal. Right, exactly. Right. And the point I'm getting at is this country, the United States of America, was created on the foundation of individual liberty. Somebody else driving in their car arguably does introduce pollutants into the atmosphere, increase the odds of somebody getting in a car accident. So just the very act of driving in your own car inherently increases the risk to every other person dying from pollution or a car accident. So do you tell people they can't drive their cars? No. We all acknowledge that there's a certain amount of risk involved with being alive. And as you pointed out, nobody is getting out alive. The end game for each of us is death. So I'm not into these decisions where, you know, you have to wear a mask because of the point oh 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 one percent chance that somebody else might get sick. And I still believe that there's a fake rogue being that's going on here. And I still think that people in favor of freedom should be in favor of a cleaner environment and don't get fooled into going along with the corporatist definitions on these things. Because mm-hmm. they always exclude themselves. But mm-hmm. when you see any of those farms, they're huge corporate farms and that often have lakes of pig waste, a lake of pig waste. Yeah, I've, I've seen it. That is it. a corporate farm. And it's, it's a corporate farm, right? I guess. And let's go to the calls. Tarif is on the phone. 202-521-1320. Tarif, thanks for waiting. What's on your mind today? How y'all doing, gentlemen? <clears throat> thanks for taking my call. Hey, I'd like to say it's free, Julian Science. I have three comments, right? <clears throat> oh, before I get to my three comments, human beings have been forming animals, especially cows, in Africa, in like Saudi Arabia area, where they found archaeological stuff for like over 10,000 years. Just letting everybody know. Um... First thing is um, the Harrison region, the, um, they, they're, they're creating a brigade down there for the people from the Harrison region to take on the Ukrainian army. The Russians are doing it. So we should see something by maybe September of offensive in that area. Um, a second comment, China, okay, it came out today. China says it will not involve its military in the event of the visit of a visit by USA. Pelosi to Taiwan. China says it will take decisive measures to prevent external interference. Okay, and they like they ain't playing for that. They ain't playing with Nancy Pelosi. They don't want her to go down. My last, <laughs> <laughs> my last comment is this. Um, okay, the Fed gonna raise the hike tomorrow. I don't know how Biden administration is gonna deal with it. We're already to me in a, a reception. When new raise anywhere from 50 basis points to uh, or maybe 100 basis points, they're going to try to put the blame all on Powell. But it's not really Powell. This has been going on since 2008, since the housing market crashed. But that's how the U.S. government don't really um, speak to us as if we are adults, to speak to us as as we 12 years old, like as we children. This is, this has been going dating back all the way to 1972 since we took the um the dollar off the gold currency, um, uh, yeah. right? So basically it's just a continuation 
just constantly going on and on and on with this high inflation, stagflation, deflation, whatever. We just we need to start putting our money in infrastructure, but we're about to face serious problems for the rest of this summer dealing with this um this um interest rate stuff, you know. So but yeah, that's all I had to say. Thank you. Yeah. Great call great call, Tarif. And you're right you bring up the Kurzon region. In Kurzon, in Ukraine, there is apparently another offensive by the Ukrainian government because they need to start showing that they can win. The Ukrainian government is under some pressure from the West to show that they're not losers. Does that make sense, Jason? Yes, all, except all Ukraine fail. has done so far has lost about 20 percent of the country. Yeah, that's going to continue. So, I mean, you know, you can't. That's like me trying to show people that I'm a duck. Not going to work. Well, 65 percent of the American people, despite all the propaganda, think that Russia is winning the war. And 65 percent of the people are right. Yes. But, you know, Russia is winning. I and agree. There's no way Ukraine can win. It's just. They got rid of their best fighters, their best trained, best equipped fighters were taken out early. And the people they have left can't win a war. So, well, but even even if they didn't mounting and have. There's no way they were going to win. It's like me. I, there's no way they were going to win even in the beginning. It's like me fighting Mike Tyson. If you were there in the corner and I was getting beaten up by Mike Tyson, and you just kept saying, well, Jason, here's a new pair of shorts. Here's more boxing gloves. I'd still get beaten by Mike Tyson. There's just no way that Ukraine is going to defeat Russia. Right. Russia's a major military. Right. One of the world's major militaries. And they're very well trained, and they have great weapons, and Ukraine can't compete. You're right. But that's going on, and the Kurzon region's the Ukrainians tried to destroy bridges over there, but they were yeah. unable to do it. So we'll see if more destruction happens. You know, the last thing that that Biden's that forgive me, Boris Johnson is doing, his last trip abroad is going to be to Ukraine. I thought so they already kicked him out, though. Right, but apparently this is the hill that Bojo wants to die on. He's wow. all in in terms of Ukraine. And maybe he's looking for that Hunter Biden money. Maybe nice. he can get hired by Marisma. Yeah. Because that's not a bad gig. Yeah, apparently. And so let's take a break. I get a question from Mark Frost about something that I hear commies say. And Mark <clears throat> is an expert economist, educator, and prog rock drummer. And so he knows quite a bit about things commies say. I'm just going to say some of them are bands. Let's yeah. take a short break. And when we come back, we'll talk to Mark Frost on the backstory. back on the backstory. I'm Lee Stranahan, and we're joined today by guest co-host Jason Goodman. We're on 105.5 FM 
and AM 1390 in the Empire of Lies capital, Washington, D.C. Joining us now, great friend of the show, Eagle Scout, educator, prog rock drummer, economist, Mark Frost. Hey, Mark, how you doing? Doing good. I'm doing really good, actually. Good. So I want to ask you something. I don't even know if this mistake has a name. It's so dumb. But I'm going to point out something I've noticed commies say a lot. Communists make a error about capitalism. They start talking about capitalism and they buy they accept a faulty premise, namely that everything a, a business does under capitalism is to maximize profit. Now, I'm not saying profit isn't a factor, but obviously not everyone tries in every business to do every single thing to maximize profit. For instance, if they if they did, everyone would all go into high profit businesses. There are people who who decide because they like books, let's say, they're gonna open a used bookstore. And they know they're not gonna get rich doing it, but they like books and like the lifestyle of being a bookstore owner. Does that make sense, Mark? I don't even know if this has an error, but they start with the premise that everything a capitalist business does is to increase its profit. And then they go and say, so in order to increase their profit, they have to exploit people. Have you heard this error before, Mark? I hear this all the time from commies. It's the classic sort of neo-communist model which is basically an evolutionary model where they argue that profit is what is a bribe that the businessman requires in order to do the right thing. So Marx built an almost religious model around this, uh, around the, the alienation of man, how capitalism removes people from their work product, and it creates basically a society of idiots. Uh, which just turns screws all day long on an assembly line. Uh, that was capitalism to Marx. And Marx the economist versus Marx the sociologist were two very different people. Uh, Marx the economist was way too neoclassical for his own good. Uh, nothing would—it it was very important to him that he took on neoclassical capitalism, not any other softer kind. And so— Basically, profit was a bribing mechanism by which capitalists uh, caused entrepreneurs to do the right thing. But what he didn't consider was that entrepreneurial behavior is a is a factor of production itself, as Joseph Schumpeter uh, made famous in the 1920s. Uh, and in that particular case. What we found is, is that capitalism is a really good compounding engine. For people that are high compounders, capitalism produces a lot of wealth. And that wealth is, is an amazing thing because now society can pass laws and it can redistribute that wealth. And so what we have today is rightly called redistributive capitalism. It, it's certainly capitalism. And it's certainly selfish in the sense that I'll educate my kids before I will educate your kids. 
But it's also very utilitarian in the sense that in no other system do high-compounding people are, – are they are – they, are they ever let loose on society to go off and do their, as Schumpeter put it, their perennial gales of creative destruction? And that's what entrepreneurial uh, spirit is, is it's, is it's innovation. It's, it's destroying the new by bringing in the new. Excuse me. It, it's destroying the old by bringing in the new. And you're right. When it's, I've heard it brought up, it ascribes an almost moral uh, you know, idealistic motives on people, as though the problem is capitalism, and it's responsible for the destruction of the soul and everything else. And it is how they bring it up. And I would argue that the way you get big projects done, whether it's a space program or anything, a big project requires a large bureaucracy, right? If you're employing thousands of people and working in science, for instance, whether it's a drug company or government, much of the operation is going to be the same. And it's not going to be that different. Big is big. And that the same things that work to manage a big project in government generally work in corporate America, too. What do you think, Mark? Well, yeah, uh, I mean, uh, Schumpeter wrote about that, too, in Capitalism, Socialism, and Democracy. He wrote in it that the modern corporation could assume the role that much of the bureaucracy has uh, in that particular sense, because what what Schumpeter understood was that communism, if you will, socialism, were evolutionary processes, because he didn't just suddenly decide to have communism. Marx himself would have would have been very critical of the Soviet Union, for instance, because they they didn't have their capitalist phase. Marx was very clear in that he believed that capitalism was essential for setting the groundwork for socialism. And wow. without capitalism, you could not have socialism. And without socialism, you can't have communism. And communism was the great religious liberation of mankind from the yoke of his self-imposed slavery. No longer did a person need to be alienated from their work product, from their community, from why and how that they were making their living. Mark, these things were very dear in Mark's heart, which is to say things were very dear to his heart other than the maximization of revenue and profit. So any and, questions for Mark Frost, Jason Goodman? Well, I was going to slightly disagree with something that you said there, Lee. I don't know that the bureaucracy of government is necessarily uh, congruent with a bureaucracy in a corporation, and I'm thinking specifically about the post office versus FedEx, they essentially do the same thing. They're delivering letters and packages, but FedEx, first of all, they charge a lot more money. So people who are uh, into uh, 
everything being, you know, their right and given to them for free might not like FedEx. But when you want something sent around, FedEx is a hell of a lot better at it than the post office. They know where it is. You can track every item. They get it there the next day. I mean, you know, there's a lot of things about FedEx that are way better than the post office. And anytime everybody ever talks about like government health care and things like that, I don't anticipate that means that it'll make health care better. I just think that people want to be lazy and have things given to them. And as far as capitalism versus communism, you said before that uh, I believe maybe Mark even said it, that capitalism is somehow seen as selfish. I don't disagree with that, but I also believe, I don't know if human nature is the right word, but it is in any living being's nature to be selfish, self-preservation. I mean, a bear is going to be more interested in taking care of itself and its cubs than another bear. But two bears might work together to help each other if it's in their mutual interest. And I think that capitalism most closely models that compared to communism and socialism and all this other stuff. What do we think? I don't, I don't disagree with that at all. Uh, Aristotle, uh, he broke mammals down into two groups, selfish and, uh, and, and, uh, altruistic. An altruistic Mm -hmm. animal is one that would sacrifice himself for the welfare of the collective. Human beings are clearly selfish animals. If only we yeah. have consciousness. I mean, consciousness right. itself incredibly selfish if you think it out. What consciousness actually is, your internal sense of self is, by definition, selfish. And right. uh, capitalism takes our selfish notions and allows us to monetize them quite often. Uh, right. I'll pay for my kid's education before I'll pay for yours. I might help you pay your rent, but I'm going to pay my rent first. Uh, those sorts of types of things. Uh, I might like you to get a raise, but not a bigger one than I got. Uh, you know, the examples go on and on and on. Well, let me ask you this, Mark. If someone's interested in paying for your kid's education, is that because they're being altruistic? Or is that because on some level they recognize that if there's a lot of uneducated people around, crime will go up and I could get shot. So let me put some money towards other people getting educated so that the world remains calm and I can stay rich. Uh, to the extent that people actually do that, it, then there might be some evidence for altruistic behavior. But generally speaking, people contribute because they're forced to contribute at the end of a right. Time. Right. Oh, the vast I think, I mean, people. if we were bees or something and we all relied on each other in order to get honey and stay alive, that might be a different society. We see this in economics well, all the time. So, for instance, let's let's take a common poll question. If you structure the question as should government do something, should government do more to help crack babies? If you phrase the question like that, you get in the 90 percentile range. Yeah. People say, say, yes, government should do something, yeah. slightly rephrase the question and say, should taxes be raised so government can do something about crack babies? The response goes down to very, very small. It's in like the 20% range. So mm. what people like to do in a, in a society of collective action is they like the things that they want, that they want abated. They want, their, they want their amenities, so to speak, to be paid on a pre-tax basis. And so that's really what's going on, I think, with any form of collective action is, you know, what does socialism mean except the socialism we like? What does big government mean except the big government programs that I like? And that's sort of the 
working theory, the working Schumpeterian theory of uh, capitalism democracy right now. I think right. the, the problem comes in, obviously, is that behavior that could be called selfish can sometimes, and with, without getting into a debate about the nature of selfishness, if it involves stealing from somebody, that could be argued that that's selfish. If I see you have a nice car, Jason, it could be argued that it's selfish for me to steal your car. Of course. And so that's the danger. Because a lot of stealing, things... You know, stealing is, you know, stealing is selfish, but, but let's talk about something else that's selfish. When I sell my services to clients, uh, I charge them more than I would otherwise take. In other words, I'm getting a producer surplus because I would actually work for less. I don't tell them that, but I would work for less. And they would probably pay me more, but they don't tell me that either because they're exploiting me. We're exploiting each other. Uh, and so, 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 so exploitation is something that happens when you have two capitalists that are competing for the same money. One of them is going to exploit the other one. And that's where profit comes from. And that's what drove Marx nuts was the concept of exploitation how that two people would exploit each other rather than cooperate. So in a, in a real-life competitive situation, human beings will choose to compete rather than cooperate. That bothered Marx because he thought that was selfish. And, of course, it is selfish, but most of what we do in life is selfish. People tell me all— It's human nature, yeah. You know, um, they'll say, Mark, you, you devote all these hours to saving cats and your cat rescue and— and you're, and you're always off adopting a cat or saving a cat. And I'm like, well, yes. Notice what I'm not doing. I'm not part of the uh, National Cockroach Preservation Society. I don't care <laughs> what happens to them because I like cats. So my, my altruistic behavior around cats is very selfish. Now, if I was out saving cockroaches, animals I hate, and I kill any time I get a chance— uh, Ooh. That would probably be altruistic because I can't stand them and I would be saving them. So, but one tip: never step on a cockroach because if it's a female, the eggs will become embedded in your shoes and you'll track them all over the place. And by the way, I'm going to issue the following warning: never step on a cat for the same reason. Right. Exactly. <laughs> your cats. It's not pretty. Cockroaches. That's true. Yeah. And, uh, of course, Mark, you rescue cats because that's where the money is, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We're all getting rich. No. And in a sense, you could, you could actually argue that what socialized medicine does, countries that practice socialized medicine, what they've done is they say, under capitalism, doctors make too much money. Aren't they? Aren't they? Because under socialized medicine... They pay doctors less, and they determined that doctors want to get paid too much. Doctors are selfish under capitalism. Am I right, Mark? That's what they th really think about doctors. Yes, because they are selfish by wanting to advance themselves at the, at the cost of the pain and agony of their fellow man, right? I mean, if you're just going to look at it philosophically— 
I mean, they're, they're clearly being selfish. Uh, take advantage of my clients. Have a lack of skills that I have a surplus in. And I charge them a pretty penny for my services. I charge them a pretty pity for my services because there's not that many people doing what I do. And I have somewhat of a reputation and I'm able to exploit that reputation and, and earn and then earn monopoloid style profits in the long run because they don't have the skill set and they have to get the skill set and it's cheaper to hire me as a consultant than it is to go find somebody like me and bring them on as an employee. But wait a minute, isn't that also true of a doctor? If someone has gone and educated themselves, if you have a broken arm and somebody is a uh, arm doctor, he's got to fix the arm yourself if you don't want to go to the doctor or find somebody less skilled who's willing to charge less. I think we, we disagree on this point because if we want to make medicine socialized and it's everybody's right to health care, Shouldn't food also be your right? That's the first step in proper health. Shouldn't your home, if you don't have a clean place to live and running water, why isn't all that stuff free? I mean, doctors need to get involved in a lot of training and dedicate their hours to uh, time away from their families to protect other people's health. If you start paying them less, fewer people will be motivated to become doctors and we're going to have a decrease in the quality of health care. Mark? Uh, I, I, I could not agree more. Uh, that's exactly true. So socialism, so the purpose of socialized medicine is to reduce the quality of health care. Ah, oh, I misunderstood what your point was, because I agree it will reduce the quality of health care. And I think it's a terrible direction for us to go in. It has to do it or it won't be socialized health care. And whether it's a socialized form of economics, whether it's a free market, form of, whether it's a free market form of economics, you have to solve the rationing problem somehow. Rationing is what the price system does in a free market economy. If you don't have a free market, then pricing has to be set on an, on an authoritarian basis. And I have a radical solution. If we stopped promoting incredibly unhealthy lifestyles through processed food and large consumption of alcohol and drugs and... Hey. Uh, things that our bodies can't process, I think that would reduce the cost of healthcare rather than pumping people up with experimental vaccines, hydrogenated oils, uh, all kinds of things that make everybody fat, sick, diabetic, and put stress on the healthcare system. They're making that, you know, available to people on welfare, and then now everybody wants free healthcare. But, yeah, and part of the problem is, how do you stop that stuff? Right. Short of restricting people's freedom. How do you stop that stuff? And I think, I think the answer it is, is well, part of the well, way to stop it is not by giving financial incentives to things right. that are bad for you. For instance, Correct. farmers get paid money to grow corn. They right. get paid money to grow corn, and there's more corn grown than people need to eat. So that's how you get partially hydrogenated soybean oil. Well, and, and also like how that. you get ethanol and things that we really don't need. So we've got these economic factors from capitalism that are driving one end of it and then putting pressure on another end of it. And I, I think we've got just a lot of uh, corruption and backroom deals that are not in people's best interests. So, Mark, what do you think about that, the idea that some things that are 
accused of being capitalism are exactly the opposite of capitalism. They're accused, as this is a bad point in capitalism, because, for instance, farmers grow too much. But it's actually the government involvement and not capitalism right. that creates the problem. What do you think, Mark? Well, yes. I mean, that's been going on since, since capitalism, is somebody does something in capitalism, somebody decides, wait, that shouldn't be allowed to happen. Government regulators get involved, whether you think it's a good thing or a bad thing, they get involved and they build a bureaucracy around that thing. And now that thing has has sticky uh, has sticky prices attached to it, and it's less resilient now because it has all this stuff stuck to it. And that's the nature of uh, just the nature of bureaucratic behavior once government gets involved. Because Capitalism does get stuck by, by by a bunch of things. First of all, capitalism isn't concerned with morality. That's what Schumpeter meant when he said that the stock, the uh, uh, that that's what he meant what? when he said that the that the stock market was a poor substitute for the holy grail. Because, uh, and then Friedman came along and said, uh, you know, things like the the. Uh, in capitalism, the baker doesn't care whether the wheat that went into the making of the bread came from a communist or a socialist, because it tends to commodify things. Capitalism tends to commodify things. It commodifies people. It, it commodifies music. It, it commodifies all sorts of things. And that's what bothered Marx, was that commodification process he argued alienated the worker from the work product of his wages, and by and mm. by, by alienating those people, you were creating a permanent uh, working class which had no power, and the only no. power that it could hope to have would be collective bargaining and collective action. Right, Jason. Do you have any questions for Mark Frost? Uh, I don't think so. I mean, you know, it's interesting stuff to contemplate. I just don't think I agree with Marx. He sounds like a guy who was pissed off that he couldn't get ahead and other people were getting rich. And so he wanted to level that out. Marx, Marx, the opposite of that from everything I know, Mark, you take the opposite view of that, right? Well, yeah, I mean, I'm a, I'm a capitalist. I'm, I'm quite proud to call myself a capitalist because no, I'm saying Karl Marx. I meant Karl Marx was pissed off that he couldn't get ahead and okay. wanted to level it. That's what I'm saying. Not not Mark who's on with us right now. Mark is agreeing and saying things that I agree with. It's just Karl Marx with all these statements about, you know, workers should have it's like it's just a bunch of people who like we see now roaming around the streets saying they want people to pay for abortions and people to pay for them to not work and a minimum wage of 30 bucks to do a poor job. I mean, the work ethic in the United States has declined in the past two years more than it has in the past 50. I would agree with that, too. And, uh, you know, certainly logically, you cannot have rights. Uh, if you go back to Locke and Madisonian, Lockean philosophy, if you just kind of look, uh, you know, into those things, it's uh, they were looking at what are rights? And rights were always something that were negative. They were negative with respect to the state. In other words, a right is something the state can't have, no matter how bad it wants it. So 
So we amended the Constitution and said no state, uh, uh, no shall, no state shall have involuntary servitude. Okay, no matter how bad the people of a state might want slavery back, they don't get to have it. There's some. So that's what the what a constitutional democracy does is it tells the, the, the people there's some things you can't have, no matter how bad you want it. Now, Mark, we had Professor Richard Werner on last hour, and he said something. We were talking to him about the central banks, and I asked him, who's really in charge, the central banks or the governments that, in theory, should be over them? He said the central banks for several years have been obviously in charge of everything. Do you agree with that? In, that, in fact, the central banks have more powers than government? Mark, what do you say? Okay. Uh, do I agree that the Federal Reserve has, has an incredible amount of economic power in the United States? Yes, I agree with that. Do I see any other way to do it? No, I don't. Because if you just throw monetary policy into the political realm, everybody's always going to vote themselves a new pay raise, assuming they can use the government credit card, so to speak. So I think what people get bothered at when they start talking about central banks is, one, the level of secrecy that they enjoy. They're exempt from the Freedom of, of, the Freedom of, of, of Information Act. They have more power than the CIA in terms of being independent. They're self-funding. They don't need Congress for their appropriations. And so the general complaint against central banks is that they're not very democratic, which is an interesting complaint because that's the purpose of them, is to not be democratic. I mean, the entire purpose of the Federal Reserve Act in 1913 was uh, was to take monetary policy outside of the democratic outside of the democratic realm and put it into okay. and put it into the bureaucracy, whereby experts. So, Mark, what changes would you make to central banks? I think if it was me, if, if I was king. Uh, I like the idea of Milton Friedman's monetarism, the sense that uh, we're not going to go to a gold standard or anything like that again. That's just not going to happen because of its because of its deflationary nature. But markets like certainty, and if we would just have a constitutional amendment that said the money supply is going to be increased two percent per year, and that's going to happen regardless of what's going on in the economy. I think you would see markets respond to that very well. I think it would create a, uh, a, a lot of solvency and a lot of stability within the banking system. And I think just in general, that would look good. And do you think, what would be the downsides? The downside is that you can't use monetary policy when you have a bona fide emergency. The problem in politics is everything is an emergency. I, I, I wished... If there was one thing about understanding politics, I wished I would have understood when I was 20 instead of only recently, is that everything in politics is an existential threat. Uh, everything, no matter what it is. Uh, if, if you hate Trump, 
Trump was an existential threat. If you hate Biden, and, existential threat. Uh, everything- and why do you think that is, Mark? Do you think it's just to get above the noise? They need to raise the stakes on every issue just so it gets heard over the din of regular, all, all competing communications interests? Yeah, I think the economics of the news business have either evolved or devolved, depends on how you look at it, to the point where that what we used to call news isn't necessarily news anymore. And what we used to say, this isn't news, is often now the news. And so journalists now have to think about click-through rates and things like that. They have to think— And we're out of time. Mark Frost, thanks very much. Jason, two thought-provoking economic discussions today. Yeah. Would you say so? Absolutely, yes. Thank, thank you to both. Thanks so much yes. to Mark Frost and Professor Richard Warner. And you made, made we made you smarter about economics. Think about stuff. We'll be back tomorrow on The Backstory. 